What do you think about when you hear the word treasure? Do you think of a chest of gold and jewels? Something like at the Disney attraction, Pirates of the Caribbean? Or maybe you think of Indiana Jones searching for his treasures. Or maybe you think of Robinson Crusoe or some of our older literature that talks about treasures. The word treasure conjures up all kinds of different images, primarily, though, of the past and of fantasy. Treasure isn't a common word for us in contemporary language today. We just don't go around talking about, well, how's your treasure today? We don't do that. So what does treasure really have to do with us then today? Well, here we are in the middle of a sermon series entitled, For Those Who Have Eyes to See, Rediscovering the Kingdom of God. We began this series in mid-June, looking at what the kingdom of God was for the Hebrews pre-Christ. And then we moved into the New Testament, and then we talked about what it means to pray, Thy kingdom come. For a couple of weeks following that, we talked about how we become a part of the kingdom. And this morning, we are going to continue that conversation as we look at the relationship between kingdom and treasure. Our scripture this morning is found in Luke 12. It's sitting in most commentaries in the middle of a a cluster of verses with the title, Do Not Worry Over Them. And so this morning, I want to read to you a part of those scriptures. But interesting, so that you'll get the context, interestingly enough, the scripture that immediately precedes our focal scriptures, 32 to 34 today, is the scripture that I used last time. Seek first the kingdom. So a couple of weeks ago, I spoke that We are commanded to seek the kingdom, and where we begin and how we begin is through praying, thy kingdom come. This morning, once again, we are commanded to seek the kingdom, and we're going to look at the object of that seeking, which is the treasure, the kingdom of God. Listen now to the word of God. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what your your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse or barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing, why worry about the rest? And it continues. And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, 
Seek first his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourself that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. If we kept a record of all the times that we are anxious or worried in the course of the week, maybe even in a day, I think it might surprise us. What do you think? Worry really does kind of overshadow our days. And yet throughout our passage this morning, we are told not to be anxious and not to worry. So is Jesus recommending a passive, unthoughtful, uncaring approach to life and the future? Absolutely not. He used a dramatic rhetoric to highlight the inconsistency of claiming faith in God while at the same time we're hanging on to and remaining anxious in our daily lives and needs. We're also told often in our scripture, do not be afraid, particularly in verse 32. Do not be afraid, first, because you belong to the little flock, and second, because God is pleased to give to you and act in your best interest. The words here for little flock speak of smallness, weakness, insecurity, and yet it is also an endearing term. In contrast to the words for your father, which speak to bigness and strength and confidence and a strong familial relationship. Fear not, little flock, but instead see yourselves as safe under the protection and covering of a good and great shepherd and lie easy in the field. Relax, take a deep breath, don't be so anxious. God has a kingdom in store for all that belong to Christ's little flock. A treasure awaits. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul's antidote to fear and anxiety reads like this. In everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the result? He says, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. One contemporary author put it this way, many people are focused on what they don't have rather than what they do have. A way to get over this, he says, is to start being thankful for the little things. You gain a better perspective on things and you won't be so focused on material wealth or the lack of it and peace happens. Perspective is important. There's a story told about a rich man, a very wealthy man. And I know I'm preaching to a congregation that has a significant amount of wealth, so please don't let this step on your toes. It's just a story. 
But there is a story about this wealthy man, and it goes that he had bought a very, very expensive special edition BMW, and he parked it on the side of a busy street. As he opened the door to get out, another car sped by and hit his door and tore it completely off. He cried out, oh no, my beautiful car. And a bystander with a question mark on his face said, man, forget your car, look at your arm. Sure enough, his arm had been torn completely off. But when the owner of the car saw it, he cried out, oh no, my Rolex. It really is about perspective, isn't it? A perspective of want and wanting more often confuses us with our needs and our anxiety as a product. A perspective of gratitude and thanksgiving for what we have and what we have been blessed with removes our fear and brings peace to our souls. Listen again now to the wonderful promise given to us in verse 32. Don't be afraid, my children. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Great promise. Good pleasure means that God was not reluctant to do it or that he was merely willing, but that it brings him joy and pleasure to gift to us. God has chosen gladly to give us his kingdom. God gives it as a gift of grace for our benefit. God withholds nothing from us. He gives us his entire kingdom. You know, sometimes gifts are difficult to understand. We try to second guess, why did somebody give me that gift? Or maybe... Why did they give me that gift? I'm sure you can remember times when you had those questions. But in the book, The Five Love Languages, Gary Chapman tells us that gifting is one of the five love languages. He says, in every society throughout human history, gift giving has been perceived as an expression of love. Giving gifts is universal. Because there is something inside the human psyche that says if you love someone, you will give to him or to her. So even though gift giving appears to be God's primary love language, as we evidence in the sacrificial gift of his son Jesus for our benefit, sometimes you and I need to learn how to receive that gift Many of us are uncomfortable receiving and don't just know how to do it, whether the gift has come from God or from another person. We begin simply by receiving the gift by saying thank you. But it just, you know, it doesn't end there. That's a great start. We have to learn to say thank you. But receiving God's gift and his treasure is more than becoming worry-free and saying thank you. It's learning to love and live like him. 
sharing our gifts with others, modeling the life of Christ. Verse 33 tells us how to begin to love and live like Jesus in the kingdom. We are given these instructions. Sell our possessions, give to the poor, and find appropriate storage for God's gifts, our treasure. Some experts would say that Jesus' advice to sell our possessions and give to the poor is not an absolute command. I tend to disagree with that. When I look at the Greek, it is in command form. And they say that, but rather it is an illustration of the kind of faith that trusts God more than it trusts riches. I think it is important that we take away that message that in our scripture we are called to trust God, not riches, that trust in riches gets in the way of God. Other scholars have preached that we are to sell what we have that is superfluous, all that we can spare for the support of, for after the support of our families and give it to the poor. Again, it's important that we recognize a principle here that we are to sell or get rid of those things that become a hindrance or an encumbrance in our service of Christ and our relationship to God. Well, knowing that the love of money does hinder our relationship with Christ, we are not to sell what we have just to hoard the money or even to make more of it by way of another investment but we sell to give gifts to others, to make offerings to others in the service of Christ, as our Father has freely given to each one of us. Jesus is not commanding all disciples of all ages to own nothing and take vows of poverty. No, that's not what he's doing here. He's emphasizing here that believers must not be dominated by their possessions, that more is more important that we give up our selfish ways and take on joy in continually giving away our stuff, our things, and our money to those in need. It is designed to bring us joy as it gives the Father joy to gift to us. When Steve and I had been married only a couple of months, a worldly wise man offered us what would be considered sage advice from the perspective of this self-made, self-proclaimed, self-made man and his peers. He said, don't buy the best and the nicest and the most expensive house, car, furniture, art, etc." They don't last. Put your money into making memories with each other and your family. The reason I said that this advice would have been sage was because it would appeal to many of this world. On first listen, it doesn't sound all that bad. But Steve and I had to take that advice and put it into this perspective again, of our Christian faith. The advice was about worldly treasures, not about godly treasures. 
He made it all about us, not about God's kingdom. And at the point where we were so close and were most tempted to buy into this advice, we now know that after having cared for someone with dementia, that even memories fade and don't last. Where his advice was thought by many to be strong and good, it was flimsy when put to the test of God's word. Our possessions and our affluent Western lifestyle show that few of us really take our Lord seriously because our Lord connects wealth to worry, and we are still worrying. When we trust things and money over trusting God, we become anxious and fearful. And the time and the energy spent on worry are hindrances to our relationship with God. Jesus teaches his disciples to travel light if they would have treasure that could not be stolen or destroyed. You know, most of you know I live in a nice house, but I am telling you right now that that yard is about to be the end of me. It requires too much thought, too much time, too much money, and too much effort. And on top of all of that, it interferes, I think, with my relationship with God and God's people and the work of God in this world. Time, energy, money that could be used in a better way. Did you know that materialism also existed in Jesus' day? Well, it's true. People were caught up in accumulating possessions and wealth above all else, just like we do today. One of the most valuable earthly possessions in that time were natural fibers, fibers like silk and wool. And those fibers were used to make the finest of clothing and the finest rugs. But here's the catch. Moths love natural fibers. And moths could destroy, even back then, their prized possessions, causing an immediate loss of their value, which they took personally, just like we do. And the temptation then was to have many clothing and many rugs, some for actual use and some just for show. It was a sign of one's wealth that all could see. Sounds familiar. And did you know that we could even be materialistic if we aren't wealthy? Anyone, anyone who centers their life around money, whether it's just to pay the bills or have the uncommon amenities of being in the top 1% of the wealthiest in the world, whether it is to have a decent car or a luxury car, when our focus is on getting and giving, gaining money for ourselves to the detriment of our relationship with God and each other, then we are materialistic. And when we focus on earthly treasures, quite frankly, we never seem to have enough, do we? Earthly treasures often fail us Thieves rob us of our goods, our money, 
even our identity now and our security, even our time and inflation reduces our cash flow and our investment value. Failures in banking and the stock market cause us great loss, often accompanied by great debt. When our possessions, our earthly treasures are lost or stolen or destroyed and their value is diminished, we do become anxious and fearful, don't we? Just ask anyone who was wealthy before the Depression or anyone who was wealthy with Enron or WorldCom stock, and they will tell you. And so our scripture continues. Don't even be tempted by your money bags or your purses or your favorite bank or your safety deposit box because all of these things are going to grow old and rot or be ruined. You need storage for heavenly treasure that can never be ruined. Invest in it. God's treasury is a, in heaven is a bank you can bank on. So as we get down to the nitty-gritty, we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. First of all, how do we transfer our treasures from Wall Street to heaven? That's quite an image, isn't it? Think about Wall Street and heaven in the same context. Well, we go for riches that make our earthly possessions unimportant. Be rich toward God and you will put treasure in God's storehouse in the heavens. The second question that we have to ask is how do we use our money to do that? Well, we use it in a way that brings honor and glory to God, and there are four ways that are the most common and most recommended by Christians. Number one, give it away. Make a habit of regularly giving your money, your time, your talents, your stuff, for use in the kingdom. Number two, help the poor. Giving to the poor was historically recognized by Jews as one way of obtaining treasure in the heavens. Yes, the Jews believe in obtaining treasure in the heavens also. Number three, support evangelistic efforts. Make your love of Christ and the gospel evident in your spending, in your checkbook. Spread the word. And number four, build something that honors God. Whether it be a gathering place, a church, or a home, invest in building relationships and places that foster a relationship with each other and with God. Build for the kingdom. These four things we call acts of investment in the kingdom of God. Bishop Moore tells a story of a little boy who was swimming one day in a lake when suddenly he suffered some kind of physical disability and he couldn't swim anymore. The boy was struggling for his life and, and a man had seen his desperate attempts. So he went into the water and swam out to meet him. The little boy had gone under twice when all of a sudden he felt the arm of this man, of a strong man, lifting him out. 
The man took the boy safely to shore, and after making certain that everything was fine, he turned to leave. The little boy said, Thank you, sir, for saving my life. The man replied, You're welcome, son. See to it that you're worth saving. Sounds like something my dad would say. But Bishop Moore said that he has never forgotten those words, for he was the boy who was saved by a man who didn't even leave his name. Bishop Moore goes on to say a good question for the Christian is, am I worth saving? I don't think that's such a great question. But he goes on to say, God in Christ has made an investment in the life of each of us, and he has every right to expect a return of that investment. The reason I disagree with the question is, of course, that we know that God has deemed all of us worthy of saving an investment. So that the real question then becomes for us, what am I doing to show my gratitude to God for his gift? What am I offering as a return on his investment in my life? The lesson in our scripture is that you can't take it with you. You have to invest in the kingdom for eternity, and then you receive a long-term capital gain. It's good investment strategy, and it's a good business practice for each one of us in all of our life to be about the work of investing in the kingdom. Make the kingdom your treasure. Value God in your life above all else. Obey God, practice his word, follow him to the cross, and trust him. This is real investing, authentic investing for a Christian. The final verse in our passage this morning teaches us that if one's treasure is invested in the kingdom, especially through helping the poor, one's heart will be focused on God's kingdom as well. On the other hand, if one concentrates on the accumulation of earthly wealth, one cannot focus your attention on God. These are mutually exclusive concerns. One cannot serve God and money. But one can serve God by the correct use of money. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is one of those circular situations where you value something and then you put your interest and your time and your energy there. Or you put your interest into something and all of a sudden it has value for you. Wherever is most important to us, that is where we put our attention and our care. The expression by Jesus that where your treasure is, there your heart is also provides us a means of knowing if we are laying up the treasures in heaven. For if we are, we will find that our hearts are naturally turning more and more to God and the things of God. Well, just as we learned in previous weeks that kingdom living isn't to be divided between our regular life and our church life, we learn here that ourselves cannot be divided either. We often try to separate our heart and our mind, don't we? 
We say, well, I'm thinking this, but I'm feeling this. And I think it's important that we respect what they bring to the totality of who we are and into our being. But Christ tells us that there is a relationship here that is indivisible. What we value is where our heart is. Now hear me clearly, Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to be wealthy. In fact, in another place in Luke, Jesus says that if you're a great manager with what you have, he's likely to give you more of it. He is, however, addressing our attitudes toward wealth. Attitudes like dependence upon material things instead of depending on God, Attitudes like investing more of ourself for the kingdom instead of investing more of ourselves for personal use. And attitudes like an attitude of ownership instead of that saying an attitude of gratitude. Well, this week I found, well, I found a couple of weeks ago a list of questions in my study of this passage that challenged me, and if you know me well, you will know that some of these questions confronted me in a very personal way. I want to share the questions with you in rapid fire because that's how I found them. But I want to share them with you as a stimulus for your own personal prayer and reflection and conversation in your home. So here we go. Where is your treasure Is it on the golf course? Is it in the beauty shop? Is it in the department store? Is your treasure in front of the TV, watching sports or soaps? Where are you putting your money? Are you putting the money in your pocket or in God's pocket? Are you putting your time into your hobby, fun, or craft? Or are you mad when the pastor asks you to give more than just on Sundays? What about your skills? Are your skills helping God's kingdom or your own kingdom? Are you waiting for someone to tell you to do something? Or are you taking up God's work before someone asks? Where is your treasure? You know, when buying a house or another piece of property and you've made an offer, it's customary to secure your intention to buy and establish a contract by making a deposit on that offer. The deposit is called earnest money. Most of you are familiar with that. It's a personal guarantee to the buyer, to the seller, that you're serious about making this deal. But the deal is not without risk. If the deal somehow enters into dispute or lengthy negotiations over a price, the earnest money becomes tied up, and it cannot be used elsewhere or in any other way. Beyond that, if you cancel your contract to buy, your earnest money may well be totally lost. God calls each one of us to an earnest money deposit of a different sort. God encourages us to release what we have and what we hold dearest to the world in order to make a deposit in heaven in the treasure that cannot and will not fail. He calls to us to make an earnest deposit investment in his kingdom. It's our challenge today 
to give good return on God's investment in us. Amen.